This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, welcoming you to the Lead On podcast, where we talk about practical issues related to ministry leadership. I'm delighted to have a guest today on the podcast, Dr. Mark Bradley, who is the director of the Pacific Northwest Campus for Gateway Seminary and also serves on our faculty. Uh, Mark, welcome to the podcast today. Great to be here. Thank you, Jeff. I asked Mark to be on today because he is uh, really an expert, I guess you'd say, in a particular subject that I think is very important in ministry leadership today. Uh, A few months ago, I heard Mark present a paper uh, on the issue of gradation of sin or answering the question, are all sins the same? Now, this has significant application in pastoral ministry, and as we talk about this as we go along in the podcast, you're going to see how. Now, as I mentioned, Mark has been with Gateway Seminary for about 13 years, serving as an administrator and faculty member. But before that, he was a longtime pastor in a particular church for about 17 years. But Mark, on the very first day of that long-term pastorate, you had an incident occur which really crystallized the need to understand this subject about gradation of sin or about answering the question, are all sins the same? Would you mind telling us that story, and then we'll let that story spring us into the podcast? Sure. I was actually, uh, it was a two-day trip to get from the seminary to uh, this pastorate, and uh, when I stopped for the night after the first day of travel, I got word that, hey, a scandal has just broken. It's probably the worst scandal in the history of our church, and they were actually kind of scared like I was going to turn around and not, not even come. Well, of course, I came on, and a call is uh, not something you turn away from. But while people were unloading my moving truck, I was being briefed by uh, a local chaplain and a psychologist about the nature of the scandal. A police officer who was a member of the church that I was coming to pastor had groomed two adolescent boys who were members of the church and uh, with with his parents. He was friends, uh, in air quotes. And uh, he had groomed them into sexual contact and... um, had finally had the whistle blown on him and had been arrested. And so that's what I arrived on the scene to confront. Now, when you confronted this, uh, the situation itself is horrific, but when you confronted the, the perpetrator, uh, this police officer who had committed these, these uh, acts, his response was what really motivated you to start making this study we're talking about today. How did he respond? Yes, I'd thought about this a good bit already, but this really brought it to a head for me because uh, I began to try to uh, express to him how alarmed I was at the grievous nature of what he had done and how, how damaging it was. And as I was kind of detailing that, he interrupted me and said, you know, it sounds like you're saying that some sins are worse than others. I said, well, I am saying that. He said, well, I thought all sins were the same, that no sin's worse than any other sin. I said, well, no, that's not true, so let's talk. And so he described how he had tried to resist these immoral temptations for some time, had really battled against them, had prayed for God to deliver him from them, and he wasn't having any victory in that. And so here's the critical thing. He finally reasoned, since no sin is worse than any other sin, I might as well enjoy the pleasure of the sexual acts that I'm fantasizing about. So he saw a difference in the pleasure, but not a difference in the sin. Man, that's so tragic, and the deception is so real. But 
he fell into the trap that some Christians believe when they say, well, sin is sin, and all sins are about the same in God's eyes. And since any sin can be forgiven, why should we be alarmed about some sins being supposedly worse than other sins? It seems to me that this kind of reasoning is about half right. It has some germ of truth in it, but it's not all true. Could you talk about that just a little bit? Well, that's exactly right. Uh, when it comes to our need of a Savior, it's true that any and every sin separates us from God and necessitates the atoning death of Christ. However, it's clear from Scripture and even just common sense that some sins are worse than others. We need to be clear on God's assessment of variations in sinfulness. Yeah, we really do. That phrase you just mentioned, some sins are worse than others, it, it just seems self-evident that that is the case. I mean, speaking an angry word to another person uh, over social media is not the same as punching them in the face or not the same as shooting them with a gun. I mean, these things are all sinful acts, but some are worse than others. But not just looking at it from that sort of practical perspective, but one thing I really like about what you've done, Mark, is you've really looked for scriptural support for this idea of the gradation of sin or the fact that all sins are not the same. So let's talk about where you've discovered some of that support. Well, yeah, there's three different ways that we can see in Scripture that there's gradation of sin. First, there are different classifications of sins. Uh, there's several of these. I'll just mention a couple. For instance, in 1 John 5, the apostle distinguishes between sin that leads to death and sin that does not lead to death. Well, obviously, these are not equal. Jesus taught that all sins are forgivable, but then named one exception. He declared that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an eternal and unpardonable sin. That's two really good New Testament examples. I, I've thought a lot about that phrase, the unpardonable sin, but I've never thought about it in the context in which you're placing it, that it does speak to gradation of sin even in that context. And of course, the other one you mentioned from 1 John. You also have uh, some Old Testament examples of this. What, what would you see there as well? Well, in the Old Testament, we see that some sins are identified as unintentional, while others are identified as intentional. Uh, intentional is worse than unintentional, or, or known sin is worse than, uh, than unknown sin. Uh, there are sins that are committed with a high hand, it says. They're committed defiantly or flauntingly. And the punishments for these differ, as we would expect. Less severe for unintentional sins, more severe for high-handed and intentional ones. So even starting with the law in the Old Testament and moving through the Gospels with Jesus and into the letters or the epistles of uh, the, uh, 1 John, we see this pattern of the classification of sins repeated. I think that's a good observation. And then second, you talk about there being comparative differences in Scripture in the gradation of sin. Describe that for us. Yes, well, let's just start with our Lord Jesus himself. He told Pilate that the one who handed him over to Pilate had the greater sin, John 19, 11. So Jesus uses a comparative adjective, greater sin. Some sins are greater than others. It's frustrating that we have evangelical popular theology that says sins are all the same when Jesus said, you know, someone had a greater sin. Right. And then in the Old Testament, you mentioned that there are uh, descriptions like of kings, for example, or groups of other people that being, were more wicked or more abhorrent or had sinned more grievously than their predecessors. These are all phrases you use to describe this comparative difference of sin. 
and not only again in the New Testament in the life of Jesus, but even throughout the Old Testament in these different contexts. So when we're talking about this scriptural support for this idea of the gradation of sin or different levels of sin, there's the classification of sins and the comparative differences, but there's one other area, and that is that in the Bible there are also descriptions of what you call progressive sinfulness. Describe that for us. Right. So, for instance, in the book of Judges, uh, it has long been acknowledged that there's a, a cycle of, of uh, sin and, and repentance and judgment and whatnot. And uh, Daniel Block, in his commentary, pointed out that it's not just <coughs> a cycle that repeats, but it's a downward spiraling cycle of worse and worse sins. And in the lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, there's, it's a prominent theme in the Old Testament that helped defend the righteousness of God that the people of Israel were getting worse and worse and worse. And we see comparative terms being used to describe that over and over. That's good references to the Old Testament. I especially think your pattern in Judges is an accurate one. But in the New Testament, Paul also writes about this. In the book of Romans, he describes ever-increasing wickedness and some other ways of speaking of this gradation. Uh, would you care to comment on any of those as well? Yes, uh, Paul makes that very clear. It's a phrase, uh, that I won't quote the Greek for you, but it's, it's translated in various ways, to ever-increasing wickedness, to greater and greater iniquity, to lawlessness resulting in further lawlessness. And so, you know, that, that's progressive, right? You, you, you go to this extent of lawlessness, and from there, you might progress to even worse lawlessness. It really fits with common sense, too, isn't it? Isn't that how, how we see our, in our own lives or in the lives of people we, we observe that they, they go from bad to worse sometimes? Yes, they do. And I appreciate you not giving it to us in the Greek, but I'm so glad we have faculty at Gateway Seminary that can do that. That makes me feel good about being president of such a school. Well, these are some of the scriptural support and scriptural arguments for this idea of gradation of sin. We're saying by these that all sin is not the same, uh, that all sin is not the same in God's eyes, and that there is a progression, if you will, of understanding of both the nature of and consequences for sinful acts. But just moving away from the scriptural support, the common sense argument to me is just so plain. Uh, what are some examples of how we consider this in our culture or how we consider this in daily life that just make it self-evident that there are different levels of sin? Right. Well, you, you alluded to some of this early in your comments. And, uh, you know, an attorney friend of mine has said if we just uh, uh, substitute the word crime for sin, <laughs> we, the argument would be over, right? Right, right. We, we've got, you know, there's regular murder and there's uh, aggravated murder and aggravated assault. You know, so there's grades of, of crimes as well. But, um, you know, we all intuitively know that a mother in a ghetto who steals a piece of bread to feed her hungry child is not sinning as badly as a serial murderer. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's, it's reasonable to, to think that and to assume that. It, it, it's, it's, it's also clear to me that if we can make that kind of distinction, it seems reasonable that God has an even keener perception of such matters. Now, in thinking about these common sense examples— uh, you have quite a list of factors that you ha have found that contribute to this gradation of sin or what makes some sins worse than the others. Why don't you talk us through some of those or maybe the list of those and then comment about how those factors work together to help us to make these qualitative decisions. 
Sure, you know, there are all kinds of different sins, and they're different in many ways. Um, the, there's differences in motivation behind the sin or the attitude about it, the degree of intentionality or overtness or boldness, you know, uh, how much you indulge in the sin. If you're repeating the sin, that's worse. If it's a hab habitual practice, that's worse. If it's involving others, well, now you're corrupting others as well. The scope of damage makes some sins worse. The innocence of the victim. I mean, it's terrible to rape anyone, but to rape a, uh, an 86-year-old woman or, or a 3-year-old, you know, is worse. Um, the number of victims, the responsibility to know better, which we as leaders need to really pay attention to. Abuse of authority, uh, defensiveness, covering up, organization or programming of the sin, profiting from the sin. Uh, there's just all kinds of issues that, that factor in. That's really a significant list. Uh, it's, it's a little bit sobering, honestly, to look through it and think about all the different things that affect how we define sinful acts and how we categorize them in terms of their relative seriousness and what they mean and what they can do and what they can accomplish in the lives of people. Now, I think I know the answer to this, but have you ever attempted any kind of scoring system for the severity of sins based on all these various factors you've come up with? Well, no. Uh, I think it's impossible to do so in detail. Um, in the past, the Catholic Church had what they called penitentials that listed various sins by different kinds of people, then ascribed different uh, required acts of penance. You know, so many Hail Marys if you do this, but if you're, uh, if you're a bishop then, and you do the same bad thing, you need to you have a, a, a more severe punishment because you're a higher-ranking official. You should know better. Um, so there are factors that we can and must analyze, but it's a fool's errand to seek to produce a thorough ranking of dozens or hundreds of sins. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, and we want to stay away from that kind of legalism as ministry leaders and also that kind of presumption. Uh, while we can recognize the difference in sinful acts and the impact they have, we don't need to get caught up in trying to categorize these things or rank them in some way or come up with some kind of a system of, of uh, seriousness or anything like that. You know, when we get down to thinking about, though, how this applies in churches, one of the serious issues that this raises is what degree of sin qualifies someone, or excuse me, disqualifies someone from a ministry leadership role, uh, from a preaching or teaching role? Uh, what level of sinful behavior disqualifies someone from being perhaps a deacon or an elder, being involved with teenagers or children, or maybe something even simpler like being a greeter or being a custodial person that helps with those kinds of issues? Mark, what kind of guidance would you have for us about how to appraise this gradation of sin idea in the context of what difference it makes in terms of church participation and even church leadership? Well, it just shows how inevitable this issue is that there are gradations, right? Because we have uh, churches full of sinners, including the pastor. Everyone has some sin, but uh, if, the, if the sin gets too big, then it's like, oh, well, we got a problem now. We have to deal with this. And you know, we're going to assess the pastor uh, or the deacon or elder more strictly on those things, and we are going to uh, grade the person who cuts the lawn for us. 
and uh, and that's appropriate. That's the way it should be. And so we just have to apply spirit-guided wisdom to uh-huh. how we're going to assess how bad is too bad for this particular position and what should the consequences be? Should they be removed for a time and, and helped or are they just out <laughs> or what, what are you going to do? I think this is so wise that or so important that you brought up the issue of wisdom because it does require wisdom to make good decisions in these situations. Uh, in our world today, there's a phrase cancel culture, which is thrown about and it's, it usually means that people are canceled or removed or fired or eliminated for any kind of action that's considered unacceptable. Well, that's just simply not a sufficient response in the Christian community. We have to take sin seriously, and we have to take sinful acts by Christian leaders very seriously. But even in the context of doing that, there is not only gradation of sin, but gradation of response. So that some behaviors require one level of response, another behavior requires a different level of response. And there are many factors that go into these decisions. And I would just simply say that uh, having been doing this for a number of years now, that a couple of things that have helped me make those decisions have been getting the counsel of a group of wise leaders involved in the decision-making so that my emotions or my temperament or my relationship to the person we're dealing with is not what drives the decision-making. And then also sometimes getting some outside guidance from either um, attorneys or counselors or, uh, or even outside advisors to help us to know how to resolve or handle a particular situation. You know, I'm thinking about a couple of situations I dealt with a number of years ago. I had a young ministry leader uh, who was struggling with uh, pornography and battling it and working hard to overcome those temptations, and we worked with him in one certain way of recovery and guidance and coaching and supervision. Along that same time, I had another ministry leader who openly committed adultery and maintained that relationship for three years before he was discovered. That response was very different. We, we did not mentor our coach or guide. We dismissed and let all of the judgment and consequences possible fall on this person. What I'm saying is that ministry leaders uh, fall into this same category of gradation of sin and gradation of response is needed. And we need to be very sensitive about how to do that well and do it wisely by usually, I think, doing it best with a group of people who help make those decisions and some outside advisors that can, do, that can help us to be more objective in what we're trying to do. Now, this issue is important not only for analyzing sin, but even perhaps more importantly, because it informs us about some significant issues related to forgiveness and sanctification. So, Mark... Talk to us, first of all, about why this issue has been important to you personally from the perspective of forgiveness, and then I want us to talk to, to, to us, you to talk to us about the issue of sanctification. Yeah, well, I've just kind of come naturally to be very interested in this whole topic because of my personal struggle with sin. Um, yeah. You, you mentioned when you introduced me that I'm somewhat of an expert on this. Uh, yes, sadly so. I'm, I'm an expert on sin, you could have said. Uh, and I think all of us are uh, or should be if we'll just be reflective about it, if we, if we care about this issue. Um, so 
God saved me from sin. And uh, I had some youthful sins that I was very guilt-ridden about. And, and now he's in the process of transforming me into the likeness of his son. So I want to be conscious of moral gradations in order to avoid worse sins and embrace greater righteousness. Yeah. You've been forgiven, and you're in the process of being forgiven, and you are sanctified and in the process of being sanctified. Now, uh, in a few weeks, you're going to present another academic paper to a group, and that paper is called Gradation of Sin as a Corollary to Progressive Sanctification. Now, those are some uh, big words that theologians and biblical scholars like yourself like to use, but could you help us understand what you mean by progressive sanctification and why that is an important uh, other side of the coin, if you will, to this idea of gradation of sin. Yes, uh, progressive sanctification is a, a pretty common term used by uh, theologians and people that teach uh, spiritual formation, that uh, we, we have been justified, saved, and then the next phase of salvation is that we are being sanctified. And even the way that's phrased, uh, it's being phrased in, a, in an ongoing way, right? It's a process that we're being sanctified. Uh, our justification happens in the moment of, uh, of, of faith. God saves us when we believe. Uh, but we have a whole life now of, of being uh, sanctified, of, of growing in righteousness, growing in holiness. And uh, since we're going to make progress in that, uh, it's, it really is, as you said, the, the other side of the coin, the corollary to gradation of sin. We should be getting rid of sin while we're growing in holiness. So justification takes place in the moment of conversion. It's a transactional moment, if you will. But sanctification is a lifelong process. Absolutely. It starts at the moment of conversion, and it continues all the way up until that final phase or stage or step of salvation in which we will be glorified and find ourselves in God's presence forever. But between that moment of justification and the conclusion of our glorification, we are being sanctified. Now, the word sanctified means to be made holy, and it involves the positive aspects of what we're talking about today. It's not just grading sin and understand the gradations of sin, but it's fighting against those, resisting those temptations, moving away from those behaviors, and instead finding ourselves choosing to live in holy ways over a lifetime. Now, this is a challenging thing, uh, very challenging. It's the, it's the ongoing work of increasing in righteousness and growing in our relationship to God through Jesus Christ. Now, Mark, I, you know, sort of jokingly said, or, or I said you were sort of an expert on this area of gradation of sin, and you've said that you're an expert on sin. Man, I would join you in that. I'm, I'm, I'm your co-partner in that expertness. But what's it been like for you to be um, in this process of sanctification? How have you seen God at work to bring about the positive changes that are happening in your life in response to your understanding of these gradations of sin and your willingness to work against them and to instead focus on, if you would want to say it this way, gradations of sanctification as you've kept growing from stage to stage over the years? Well, uh, I'm kind of analytical by nature, so I just tend to break things down and, uh, and see connections and uh, I don't just see things black and white. So for instance, uh, I preached through the seven deadly sins twice when I was a pastor, 
And uh, I don't see those as you either have it or you don't, you know. Uh, so for instance, pride and greed. I don't just think, okay, do I have pride or not? The question is, how much pride or greed do I have? Uh, what is the evidence of uh, the existence of pride in my life or greed in my life? And my goodness, you can, you can go a long way of thinking about those things. And mm. so the, you know, the goal, my, well, my natural human tendency is to become increasingly prideful and, and greedy. Uh, so that's the like gradation of sin, like going further into sin. But with God's help, I aim to become more humble and more generous. Mm, that's so good. I, I've often imagined uh, something like these seven deadly sins as being like flickering flames in my life. And I'm trying to lower the flame. I, I don't know that I have ever <laughs> extinguished any of them. I've never, for example, to use your two illustrations, extinguished pride entirely in my life. But I believe I'm less proudful than I once was. I've never extinguished greed, but I can say I'm less greedy than I once was. And then I also go through these times of life where I feel like I'm doing really well on managing something like pride, and then it flares up again, and the flame is roaring in my life, and I have to, again, work to limit and extinguish and, and, and shrink that, if you will. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis I think is really relevant here. He said in Mere Christianity, he said, Good and evil both increase at compound interest. That is why the little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which a few months later you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. Mm. And apparently trivial indulgence and lust or anger today is the loss of a ridge or railway line or bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible. Mm. That is such good word, such good word. And... Uh, wouldn't be surprised that it would come from someone like C.S. Lewis who had a deep way of thinking about these things. Well, we've used this phrase um, uh, about sanctification and uh, justification, progressive sanctification as a result of our justification. We've talked a good bit about that. Another uh, phrase that you use in your uh, writing and teaching is this phrase, moral equivalency. And why is it that you think that evangelical Christians have been prone to the error of moral equivalency? You may need to explain what that is first and then help us to understand why we seem to be prone to fall into that trap. Mm -hmm. Well, the idea of moral equivalency is, 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 is another way of saying, you know, like sin is sin, just the, the, the flattening out of it all, just equating it all. And I think that evangelical Christians have been prone to this error as an unintended consequence of our emphasis on salvation and evangelism. And I applaud that emphasis. Of course, that's the, the greatest thing. What's someone's eternal destiny going to be? We need to evangelize them and help them to come to salvation. But it must, must not be at the expense of discipleship and mm. sound teaching on right. sanctification. Every and any sinner, great and small, must repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. But having done that, we should come to understand and earnestly cooperate with God's work of actually purifying us from sin and making us objectively more righteous. Well, talk about those phrases. What do you mean by actually purifying us from sin and objectively more righteous? 
Well, if we keep claiming our imputed righteousness, which is another theological term, you know, that God just imputes righteousness to us. Uh, when he sees me, he doesn't see me, he just sees Jesus. Uh, it's like this magic secret faith thing right. that we believers understand is a deep theological truth. But if we stand on that and don't have actual observable righteousness and good right, behavior, right. it causes two problems. One is we fall short of God's intent. And two, we damage our witness to a skeptical world. That is so right, because we are saying we have this imputed righteousness that comes in the moment of our justification, and that's certainly true. But then to ignore the corollary reality that we have to be actually growing in righteousness also and demonstrating that righteousness so that, again, people who see us see us living out our commitment to God through Christ. I like what you say. It damages our witness to what is already a skeptical world. Yeah. I had a, an occasion on a flight to one of our meetings here uh, in Ontario for the seminary where this really came to the front for me in a heartbreaking way. I was uh, chatting with a young man uh, on the plane that I'll call Ryan. He was in his 20s, and we just began to chat. I'm always hoping to get into a witnessing conversation in these kinds of settings. And uh, so that began to happen, and he seemed very interested and open, and uh, the conversation was going well. I was getting excited. And uh, so I waxed eloquent about how marvelous grace is. And his countenance changed, and he kind of stiffened up. And I said, I, what happened? I feel like I kind of lost you there. He said, well, I mean, I've enjoyed this up till now. I don't want to be rude. I said, well, no, something bothered you. What was it? He said, well, you know, you lost me on grace. I said, why? Grace is awesome. What are you talking about? He said, I think grace is the ultimate cop-out. And I said, please explain. I don't understand how that could be the case for you. And he talked about how he had coworkers who claimed to be Christians, but they were the worst gossips. They were irresponsible on the job. Uh, they took credit for things they hadn't done. They'd talk about going out and partying and who they slept with or whatever else. And when he tried to call them out on their bad behavior in life or in the, work, in the workplace, uh, they would say, well, yeah, everybody sins, but but I've got grace, and so I'm just forgiven. Mm. And so he said, hey, it's just a cop-out. And I try as I might, I've witnessed a little bit in my life, I could not get him back on track. He was so scandalized by Christians who just stood on their grace and didn't have a life that lived up to it at all that he said, I, got, I want nothing to do with this. Wow. Man, Mark, thank you for that. And that's a good place for us to end today a story that reminds us that this conversation we've been having is not just an academic exercise. It has real application in presenting the gospel in an authentic way to people in our world today who are looking for people who are actually living what we say we believe. We've talked today about this idea of the gradation of sin. What we're simply saying is all sin is not the same. And there's a lot of different factors that go into deciding the uh, relative seriousness of any particular sinful act. We're not here today to try to create a chart or a ranking system or anything like that. But we are trying to debunk the idea that sin is sin and all sin is the same and all we need to do is just be forgiven. No. The gradation of sin, the opposite side of the coin, the need for progressive sanctification that we are recognizing that we have to continually be working to grow in our relationship to God by extinguishing 
these sinful influences within us and growing in our demonstration of this righteousness that we have received in Jesus Christ. This has a lot of application also in church leadership today as we think about the kinds of acts and the kinds of behaviors that disqualify a person from certain levels of ministry leadership. That's serious business. It deserves serious reflection as we think about the fact that some sins are so serious as to be that kind of disqualifiers. Well, thank you for listening today. We've talked about an important issue. It has application in church leadership, in witnessing, and in disciple making. Think about it as you put it into practice this week. These new insights you've received, use them effectively as you lead on.